Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are happy to welcome Andy Young back to the show. Andy is a Young Voices contributor. He wears a few other hats as well. Andy, tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Andy. I'm a legal fellow at Tech Freedom. We're a small tech policy think tank located in D.C. So I do a lot of work keeping up with what Congress and the agencies are doing in terms of big tech. And, and big tech is on a lot of people's minds as far as uh, Congress goes these days, uh, both for good and for bad. I mean, right now, a lot of people are kind of fixed on or fixated on uh, Elon Musk and and Twitter. But I understand that uh, there have been numerous calls uh, and uh, attempts to rein in big tech to level the playing field, uh, so to speak. Talk to us about some of the, the dynamics behind that. Who's calling for these kinds of policy changes and and what's their reasoning? Certainly. So I almost should be careful using that term big tech because it includes a different bucket of companies depending on who you ask. But generally, we're talking about large U.S. technology firms like Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google. And recently, Congress in particular has been focusing on some bills that would be disrupting these big tech companies uh, business practices and even some bills that would be as extreme as forcing these companies to break up and divest some of their smaller subsidiaries. So those are the bills that I'm focusing on in my latest piece. Now, I'm sure if Congress is doing this, the the ostensible reason they're going to give us is, hey, we're just looking out for you, the little guy. I'm looking at uh, an article that you've written for techdirt.com, which points out they have other alternatives, which they may not be looking at. Talk to me about some of those other alternatives that Congress might look at that would actually be more helpful to, to the average person. So you hear Congress and lawmakers talk about leveling the playing field for small businesses, and that's definitely a good goal to pursue. In my newest piece, I talk about a different route you could take to leveling the playing field for small businesses and giving them an opportunity to compete a little more evenly or give them even a boost in the technology industry. And that the idea is called a regulatory sandbox. Now, I'm only familiar with that term because I had the privilege of spending about a year working for Connor Boyack at Libertas Institute in Utah. And I know that uh, Utah actually passed a regulatory sandbox law that uh, apparently has has, uh, sent some ripples out across the nation. Sounds like others are looking to do it. For people who aren't familiar with a regulatory sandbox, what unpack that for us. What do we mean when we use that term? So a regulatory sandbox is a regulatory framework which lets qualifying companies sell products and services without complying with all the red tape and regulations controlling that industry. So in a way, these sandbox companies are exempt from the regulations and rules governing that industry. But in most cases, sandbox companies are actually not fully exempt from regulations. Certain regulations like consumer protections still apply. And sandboxes can last for a limited amount of time. And companies also pass out of the sandbox once they sort of outgrow that criteria. But essentially, they're not having to ask for permission at every single turn and, you know, complete this uh, this impact environmental impact statement and so forth. In other words, they're, they're being given the opportunity to innovate and, and maybe not to be quite so heavily regulated. Is that a fair way to to describe that? Definitely. These small companies apply for the regulatory sandbox. Once they're let into the sandbox, then there are far fewer regulatory burdens they have to comply with and costs that they have to pay 
in terms of hiring lawyers, meeting all these different burdens, reporting costs, like you mentioned. Uh, they strip it down to the bare minimum and in terms of regulation pressure on these companies. And because of that, the companies can experiment more and be more innovative, try more risky business models, knowing that there aren't as many costs they have to worry about in the first place so that they can uh, take a few more risks and be a little bit more innovative. Andy, what are some of the industry areas that we might recognize where where this kind of, uh, you know, this uh, regulatory sandbox is being utilized to provide innovation? Tons of areas and lots of different states have implemented them as well. Uh, you mentioned Utah. They have an all-inclusive regulatory sandbox, so it applies to all different industries. And uh, one of the places where regulatory sandboxes first started in the U.S. is in Arizona, they have a regulatory sandbox focused only on financial technology companies. So companies that offer apps that help people uh, open bank accounts and monitor credit cards, financial technologies or fintech companies. So you can make a sandbox very small and niche like Arizona has done, or you can make a re- regulatory sandbox broad and all encompassing like Utah has done. And both states have seen a lot of success and growth in their programs. Nice. And and are there any particularly promising uh, technologies that you see um, being explored right now in these sandboxes? I think fintech is a great industry to be experimenting in because the banking industry has tons of requirements they have to comply with from the federal government as well as state governments. At the same time, people are uh, seeking new ways to access money and want to get easy access to cryptocurrencies and NFTs and technologies like that. And so if you can and incentivize entrepreneurs to invest in companies that let users access these banking services more easily without having to ask questions like, do we fall under this banking statute for these states? It really encourages a lot of experimentation and takes pressure off these entrepreneurs to do creative things. So I think banking is one industry, but uh, legal services is another one that I'm very excited about. And that's coming from someone who graduated law school. So I think uh, that's a potential to be a huge industry a lot of growth in the sandbox for legal services as well. Is there much resistance within the, the government or within its regulatory arms? It seems like some people might see this as a threat to their job security. Well, you see some raised eyebrows in terms of people saying, uh, really, we're, we want companies to comply with fewer regulations. But I think those people are reassured when you tell them that actually regulatory sandboxes don't take away all regulations. And it's, it's up to lawmakers, actually, to say uh, you don't have to you don't have to follow X, Y, and Z rules, but you still have to comply with environmental protections and you still have to comply with consumer protections. So uh, in terms of regulatory sandboxes being a full pass to do whatever they want, that's not the case. And companies are still held to certain requirements to make sure that they're uh, encompassing and, and pursuing the the overall good in terms of the industry that they're in. Andy, with all the the interest right now, and I'm, again, I'm kind of hearkening back to Twitter. It's it's all about the the controversy over content moderation, and you know there there are people saying Congress should be you know calling these companies to do even stricter content regulation. Um, talk to me about maybe some of the innovation that this could open the door to that wouldn't involve Congress getting deeply involved in in these big tech industries. Sure. So a regulatory sandbox for tech could have certain stipulations in terms of how companies moderate content. And if a company wanted to be part of the sandbox and have pressure taken off of them in other areas, the government could potentially stipulate or the states or Congress that you have to moderate content in these certain ways, so long as it complies with the First Amendment. That's obviously the most important thing that the government has to make sure that they comply with. 
But uh, yeah, regulatory sandboxes could be a way to experiment with different modes and different forms of content moderation, which is an issue that everyone's very worried about. So why not open up the regulatory sandbox in that, that issue area and experiment a little bit? Is uh, do do you find there are, are parties that are receptive, you know, to that sandbox approach? I'm I'm trying not to to cast too broad of a net here, but some people seem very very concerned that Twitter, for instance, may have more free speech than they think it should have. They're not worried about being canceled so much as they they worry that they won't have the ability to cancel people whose voices or messages they don't like. Well, I'm not sure about the the whole area of speech in particular, but I know entrepreneurs are excited about regulatory sandboxes. People that want to start companies and people that want to experiment with new ideas, but don't know if they can do so without having to go under by having to comply with tons of regulatory burdens. So I'm talking about entrepreneurs that want to start tech companies are excited about this idea. And and we see in states which have implemented regulatory sandboxes, entrepreneurs have started new companies in those states and the programs have been a success. So in terms of people who are looking for certain types of speech, I'm not sure how they view regulatory sandboxes, but people who are pro-business and people who are pro-competition in the market are pretty much across the board pro-regulatory sandbox. Well, the the whole idea of the pro-regulatory sandbox to me sounds a lot like, you know what, you, you get enough people free enough to work on it, we're going to, the problem solvers are going to rise to the top. Is that, I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, the whole idea of competition is that the ideas compete in a marketplace and the best ideas rise to the top. Uh, right now, some people are worried that the big tech companies control the tech marketplace so much that small entrepreneurs cannot break into the market and rise to the top, that the marketplace of ideas has been sort of messed up. Uh, regardless how you feel about the idea about that concept, introducing new competitors, small companies into the marketplace of ideas is always going to be good and is going to allow more competition to allow more good ideas to rise to the top and challenge these established companies, which is an outcome that I think everybody wants across the political spectrum. Yeah. You, as you point out in your article, it's, it's way better to encourage these new innovators and companies to come in and, and be a part of the, the situation rather than just, well, let's let's tear down or uh, dismantle, you know, existing successful companies. Um, Tell us, Andy, where can people find your writing? People can find my writing on regulatory sandboxes on TechDirt. And people can also find me on Twitter, speaking of Twitter, at Andy Young Tech. All right. Again, we're talking with Andy Young. He is a Young Voices contributor. Andy, great to catch up with you again. Hope we talk again soon. I hope so, too. It's really great to speak with you. We are back. We're joined on Moving Forward with Young Voices by Cooper Conway. Cooper is a Young Voices contributor and also getting ready to graduate from Boise State University. And Cooper, great to catch up with you again. Congratulations, by the way, next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, I know school choice has been making a lot of headlines over the last couple of years. Um, I, I actually believe if there was a, a good thing about the COVID pandemic and some of the, the, the fallout that, that followed, it's that school choice actually became kind of a front and center issue for a lot of people just because they had to explore different alternatives um, and, and it wasn't business as usual. Now, you have an article in uh, Chalkboard Review about why Republicans should support school choice in Iowa. 
And before we talk about Iowa specifically, talk to me about nationwide. What's the general trend? I mean, there was, it seemed like there was a pretty good head of steam last year. Are we seeing similar momentum keeping up this year as far as school choice measures? Well, you're exactly right. We had about 19 school choice victories uh, last year in 2021, which is um, pretty much unheard of. Uh, but this year, I thought going into the year we were going to have a similar trend and there was going to be a lot of school choice victories. Uh, and I was in right in one sense is that a lot of school choice bills are active and they've been introduced, but we haven't actually seen a lot of victories. And a lot of this isn't because of the Democrats or teachers unions, which usually oppose school choice. And they still are. And they're doing a pretty good job of it this year, but also because they're getting some help from uh, Republicans in different states like uh, Georgia, Utah and Iowa or, and Idaho. And that surprises me because these are states that I would typically think, well, if they're Republicans that are, you know, uh, dealing with these issues, of course, they're going to be more conservative. But tell me, what was it that uh, what was the uh, the opposition that these Republicans in Utah, Idaho and Georgia were were invoking as to why they would oppose school choice bills? Well, it was a different uh, case for each state Uh, in Georgia. um, There was a pro school choice group that sent some flyers around. Uh, to some constituents in, uh, in the in the state saying, you know, make sure you hold your um, representatives accountable, the Republicans, and make sure they pass school choice. Now, the Republicans did not like those flyers. And so uh, in turn, they just dropped school choice. And, and the real losers were the kids. Right. And then in Utah, um, the governor kind of came out and said, I'm not going to be passing any school choice or or voucher bill unless um, these teachers are paid sixty thousand dollars or more. Uh, And that's because he received some um, donations from teachers unions. And then in Idaho, um, this is more of a similar trend that we see when Republicans kind of hop off the school choice boat is that a lot of rural um, representatives believe that school choice is going to negatively impact uh, their local public schools. Okay, well, all right. I it's so it's not purely you know it's not you know ideology. They're not frothing at the mouth. You know, I, I sorry. I kind of expect that from the teachers' unions. They really get upset at competition. But talk to me about Iowa. Why is Iowa a place where school choice is front and center? And um, what's their situation? Well, Iowa doesn't have a lot of school choice um, opportunities, um, and so this recent bill um, that was passed in the Senate really would. Exp- Band, uh, school choice um, for about 10,000 students from lower and middle income families. Uh, middle income families being um, for a family of four, um, the most family that can make is around $110,000. And so they're trying to create an education savings account that would allow 70% of the state per pupil funding, which is around a little over $5,000, um, to follow the child to nearly any education expense that they may choose. So whether that be a private school, um, learning materials, tutoring, or or special needs therapies, um, that would really help a lot of children and just give them some more flexibility. So if I'm hearing you correctly, this wouldn't just apply, uh, you know, to the private schools that would would affect it. They could apply that same money to their children's education in in terms of the public institutions that they're accessing? Um, It it would about 70 percent and the the money would follow – from the public institution. Um, so if they decide to leave their public school, um, they can use this money at any basically any basic um, private education expense. What, um, now, would that include homeschool? Yep, that would include homeschool. Wow. So, yeah. It only limits it to education expenses, but it's very, very flexible when it comes to that. And what uh, what kind of support is that receiving, you know, mo- uh, you know, among the population? Is that is that something that uh, seems to be receiving a groundswell of of support? 
Well, rec- yeah, recent polling, uh, according to Ed Choi, shows about 66% of all adults in the state of Iowa support um, ESAs, like the ones that they're trying to create. And it's about 76% of all school parents. Um, so this bill is extremely popular. Um, it's bipartisan support um, in terms of the people in Iowa, but not necessarily in terms of the politicians in Iowa. So what's what's the politicians' opposition? Are they seeing this as, you know, they're losing some influence because these parents actually have more choice, you know, in their in their own hands? Yeah, well, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, Democrats usually oppose school choice. It's in the party platform. Uh, teachers unions have a lot to say about that. A lot of funding goes into that to be able to um, protect the public schools uh, in terms of the money that's being um, that's going there. Um, but Republicans, it's, it's very much similar in that they don't want these rural schools to um, have some negative effects. But the research doesn't really back that up at all in terms of the negative effects that public schools have once school choice programs um, are implemented. Um, for example, we know that once a school choice program is implemented, um, public school students' test scores actually increase in 25 of the 27 studies done. So this is really just the rising tide that lifts all boats um, type of situation going on when school choices is proposed and implemented. Are other states now taking a little closer look at what Iowa is doing? I mean, this sounds like this sounds like a better version of you know previous attempts that I've seen to, to, to bring school choice to states. Is Iowa becoming one of the states that's leading out now in this issue? Yeah, well, this, EO, this ESA that Iowa is proposing is really the gold standard of school choice. Um, in that it provides the most flexibility, uh, the most empowerment that it gives to these um, these students and these families. And so we're seeing other states uh, like Oklahoma, for example, um, hopefully we'll be able to push their uh, school choice bill across the line this year. And then I hope personally, as I'm in Idaho right now, that Idaho comes back next year and passes an ESA. And I think um, they're ripe to do so. Well, who who are the people doing the heavy lifting on this? I, I'm curious. Is it is it uh... Is it nonprofit uh, public policy institutes? Is it uh, is it grassroots parents organizations? I'm just curious who's trying to move the needle here. Well, some nonprofits, some think tanks, uh, they always do a fantastic job. But in this case, with last year with the school closures, and then also some uh, differences amongst opinion in terms of curriculum that's being um, put into place in these public schools, it's the parents that are really taking charge. And uh, people talk to me all the time. It's like, you know, how how much good does you know ten moms who are for school choice do? And I say, you never underestimate a mom that's upset and wants something better for her child because they will get it done. Uh, and that's what we're seeing. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see here. Uh, in Iowa and hopefully in Oklahoma as well. Cooper, given some of the really um, divisive topics that have found their way into some school curriculum, CRT and different uh, gender ideology topics, uh, does this help to ease that uh, that uh, contention uh, when when parents have choice as to where they send their kids? In other words, not every school is going to be teaching out of those same uh, woke playbooks. Yeah, it does ease the tension a lot. Um, school choice is often cited as a great tool that is able to lift people's test scores and help them with educational attainment. I know that was certainly the case for me as my family was able to uh, use school choice for my sister and I, and I'm going to be graduating college in you know, a week and a half, and she's going to be graduating next year. Um, but also for my family, it was a lot about the moral values um, that were embedded in us. Um, for me as a Christian, that was going to a private Christian school where I could uh, go to class and my dad was my teacher all four years of high school. Um, but that's for a lot of different families who are, are trying to uh, make sure that their children have the moral values that they want them to have. Um, and so whether that means um, more CRT, I guess, or uh, having no CRT at all, school choice definitely is the tension in that boat. 
And and I have to ask, we got about a minute left here, but I have to ask, I know one of the big objections I often hear when it comes to school choices, but what about the poorest, the most disadvantaged among us? It sounds like Iowa pretty effectively addresses this in their proposed policy. Yes, this school choice bill is specifically meant for students that come from lower income backgrounds uh, and some middle income middle income families as well. Um, this is this is a school choice is really uh, empowering for these families because wealthy families they're always going to have access to the best schools. Whether that means moving into a neighborhood that they're assigned to with a great public school um, or taking the money and just paying twice. For me, I don't see why a lower income family or any family at all, for that matter, um, should have to pay twice for an education. I think that we should just have the money be following the students uh, and not the system. All right. We are talking with Cooper Conway. He is a contributor for Young Voices and soon to be a graduate of Boise State University. Again, congratulations, Cooper. Where can people find you on social media? Yep, they can uh, find me at Cooper Conway uh, with the number one on Twitter, and then they can find my uh, work at the Young Voices website with my with my headshot. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Kenneth Shrupp back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor and. Can I tell everybody a little bit more about uh, who you are and what you do? Hi, uh, I'm a public affairs consultant and writer on politics, the intersection of politics, media, and business at Young Voices. Um, I like to take a wide-ranging interdisciplinary approach to my writing and cross a wide range of fields because I think that's what we need to understand the greater American picture. I'm reading an article. Actually, I was reading an article earlier that you had written for uh, the American conservative dot com waging war on obesity. And I have to say that you've got a really good take on this, although we hear we hear talk about what's well, war on this and war on that. Talk to me about why obesity is front and center in a lot of people's consciousness right now. Well, I mean, there's there's a few things to unpack here. First is why obesity and why now uh, we know. COVID is the thing that has overtaken us in our in our uh, national conversation for the last two years. And it, it's really astonishing to me that there's not more in the national conversation about how we can help people be healthier overall. And that significantly means losing weight. Um, people who are obese are three times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID. 74% of Americans are overweight or obese. Ergo, you'd think that we'd have some kind of national movement to say, okay, we're not going to shame you for being fat or overweight. We're not going to but but we are going to recognize that this is a shared problem that we have. Um, to put things into context, we spend about 47% or more of all of our dollars on chronic illness to obesity-related factors. Um, and you know, there's a Milken Institute study that estimates this cost us $1.72 trillion in 2016, which was then 9.3% of GDP. And that's, that's sort of why I make this comparison uh, of why really we are going to have to wage war on obesity because that's 9.3% of GDP was more than peak cold war U S defense spending. (laughs) Wow. Now, I don't know. I, you know, my memory's fuzzy from when I was a kid back in the seventies, but as I look at pictures from back in that time period, like if, if you were to see a, you know, a crowd shot, Oh, look at everybody, you know, uh, either out shopping or walking down the boardwalk or at the beach or something. It's not that overweight people didn't exist, but the percentage of the population that was carrying a lot of extra weight seemed much, much smaller at that time. And, and that's just, you know, 
I think that's my own bias that in, in looking at that. But I'm curious, do the statistics show out that, you know, since life got easier, the computer age, and we spend so much time looking at screens, have we seen a corresponding jump in terms of, of real obesity? I mean, the biggest jump was was when in the post cold uh, in the post World War II era, um, you know, once we made that switch from home cooked meals to more processed food and instant meals. Um, but that really, really started to pick up in the seventies and eighties. It's really nineteen eighty that you see these things go off. So there's a strong correlation between us living less active lifestyles um, and switching to far more processed foods. And okay, so I have to ask this just because I'm not going to deny that there's an obesity problem. I'm carrying, you know, some extra table muscle that I really wish I wasn't. What do you think is the best way to approach it, though? I'm I'm leery about telling government, hey, here's a problem. Solve it, because it seems like coercion is really the only thing that they have at their disposal to try to solve problems. So, yeah, I also agree that mobilizing government to mandate or require new things is not going to likely get us the results that we want. Most of major American industries all benefit from the status quo of where more and more Americans are becoming, you know, overweight or obese, increasing their consumption, um, becoming reliant more on drugs and medical interventions, not able to moderate their consumption of goods. So they, they generate more debt, more interest, um, you know, a population that doesn't move as much consumes more screen time. If I can imagine a future where the industries we seek to regulate will simply rewrite the regulations to maintain their, the status quo. Um, in terms of what we can actually do, we can start off by changing some of the um, subsidy structures that make food proce- processed foods so cheap, right? Um, the United States, we pay, bill- as a result of a, uh, you know, Great Depression, uh, Dust Bowl era policies that make that paid farmers extra to plant corn because it's a grass that keeps the soil down. We now we now use a third of our corn just to make bioethanol, and then the rest of our corn we use to make we use make, make tons of high fructose corn syrup. We don't actually eat a lot of our corn; we either feed it to cows, yeah. uh, which just gives them tremendous amounts of inflammation and makes their meat very unhealthy, or we or we use corn syrup because we have such high sugar tariffs. I mean, there's all these cascading effects where if we simply were to end or transfer these subsidies from, from corn, these grains to even fruits and vegetables, not even eliminate them entirely, we could have a much healthier population. Okay. I mean, look, I, I love convenient food as much as the next person, but, uh, but I have to agree. You, there's a trade-off, you know, if, if, if it's highly processed, it's it may be filling your tummy, but it's not necessarily doing you any favors. Um, what about uh, for the for the food producers? Are they the primary recipients of these subsidies? Uh, is is there is there anything in terms of policy that uh, would persuade them to to use their resources to to promote more healthy eating choices? Um, in this case, it's it's the growers who directly receive the subsidies. Um, farmers don't far, farmers. It, I mean, farming is a very tough business. It is a really tough business. So you're going to grow whatever is the safest financial option for you to grow. And all the government subsidies currently make growing corn or growing soybeans the, the best and safest crops for you to grow. Um, like it's, it really is a hard business. Uh, but 
that's not what's really best for the health of Americans. And so because because it's because farmers make the most reliable income from growing these crops, there's a huge abundance of them, which means that the processors who, who purchase the crops from these farmers do so at an unbelievably cheap price. And we dump that all across the world market, by the way. We're not just we're not just worsening Americans health. We are our mechanized production and highly subsidized corn grains. You have it get dumped into foreign markets across the world and wipe out their local farming sectors, which is usually the first uh, industry that needs to be um, modernized for a country to get out of the poverty gap. So we're not, we're not just damning ourselves to low product, I mean, unhealthy, unproductive people. We're, we're, we're really impoverishing the rest of the world. You mentioned in your article, too, that loneliness is something that kind of goes along with, you know, this this obesity um, epidemic and that, uh, you know, if 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 we have proper support and I'm going to I'm going to translate support um, accountability. I mm-hmm. take care of better care of myself when I'm being accountable to a workout partner or, a, you know, a coach or or even just, you know, my family. Hey, you know, have we been for a walk today or something like that? Um, talk to me about uh, why don't we talk more about obesity is 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 it because we're, we're worried somebody's going to accuse us of fat shaming people for for not being svelte? I mean, let's let's be honest. It's uh, it is it is something that is talked about as a, as a personal moral failing. Um, but it's something that if, if it's a problem that 74 percent of Americans have, then, then surely it's something that we can't keep taboo any longer and that. The people are going through similar challenges and struggles. You know, I talk about how, oh, well, we might be able to do some, have some better urban planning and be more, uh, walk, have more walkable cities or might shift subsidies around. Realistically, those are just like, those are just nibbling away at the edges. It's really a cultural problem that we have where we have, are such a lonely society um, with such little interaction and support with each other that we do turn to just food as our comfort, even if everything else is going well for us. Um, we really, three and five Americans are lonely and we know it's as deadly as obesity in terms of your health. Uh, people really should be able to reach out to each other and hold each other accountable and, uh, understand obesity is something that we have to defeat together. And, you know, as much as I love the ability to do work online, I mean, it's, it's made it wonderful. It's made it possible for me to work from home. There, there have to be some, uh, some alternatives to just sitting and looking at screens and living life, you know, via social media. Um, I, how do we turn the corner from, from that virtual existence back to a, you know, in the real world existence? I think, I think it really could start uh, with, with communities and with eating. Uh, one of my friends has a food startup, an event and a supper club where he, he brings people from all across the area to, to these fantastic, marvelous dinners. People who have never met each other get to mingle, talk, learn about food, learn about, learn about like the, the systems of food and uh, how they can be happier, healthier people. And you meet all kinds of people from across the area and you, and you build a better, stronger social network. It's fantastic. I think food really is I mean, it's it's the way that we've gotten into this problem, but it's also the way out of the problem. Uh, we've got about one minute left, but I have to throw this out there. Um, is there any benefit to people producing more of their own food? You know what? I think there I think there really is. You know exactly what's happened to your own food. You're probably not going to use a ton of pesticides. It's very low cost for you to do so. And uh, you, having a relationship with food helps you remember your relationship with nature and the environment, that we're not just these 
these people who can live in these concrete blocks and uh, live through our screens, that we're part of nature, we're part of this planet. All right, we are talking with Kenneth Shrupp. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Kenneth, where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Kenneth Shrupp. Uh, that's S-C-H-R-U-P-P. Thank you very much. This is our final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Roy Matthews, who is a Young Voices contributor, back to the show here. Roy, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself for those who are meeting you for the first time. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, Like you said, I'm Roy Matthews. I'm currently a public policy associate at the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure in Washington, D.C., and I'm a graduate of Bates College. Um, When I'm not researching energy, transportation, or climate, I like to keep track of uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, and all things Central Asia, because it's, uh, I think, one of the most fascinating areas of the world to focus on. Ah, haven't heard anything about it, especially lately. I'm just kidding. It's, it, it is on a lot of people's minds. And actually, I'm looking at an article you wrote for nationalinterest.org, and I learned a new word here, or at least I learned a phrase that I had never learned before, um, Finlandization. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about why Finland's future is with NATO. And let's start with that word, Finlandization, uh, as, as a starting point. So Finlandization is uh, a Cold War, um, a, cold, a, cold, a very Cold War era concept. Um, it comes from, obviously, the country of Finland um, and Finland's forced neutrality during the Cold War. Um, Finland never joined NATO, but it never fully aligned with the Soviet Union. It was not a Warsaw Pact member. Uh, And that was because Finland um, actually got into two different wars with the Soviet Union, the Winter War, um, which is sort of orally 1939 to 1941, and the Continuation War, um, which was from 1942 to 1945. And essentially, Finland, being a very rural and sparsely populated country, um, managed to hold back and inflict heavy losses on the Soviet military. However, they eventually lost that war. And the Soviets essentially came to an agreement with Finland that um, you know, they wouldn't be they wouldn't join war, the Warsaw Pact, but they weren't allowed to join NATO. Um, the Soviet Union was allowed to build military bases in their countries, um, pack. Uh, civil society full of their um, flunkies, so to speak, and force Finland to be a neutral country. Um, and the reason this came up recently is because that uh, French President Emmanuel Macron um, proposed that Finlandization, quote, would be a might be a scenario that Ukraine might want to consider in order to stop the current Russian invasion. So essentially. Ukraine would become a buffer state, kind of like Finland was. Yes, um, Finlandization exa- was Finland was exactly right, a buffer state between sort of the more neutral but pro-Western Sweden and Norway and the Soviet Union. Um, Finns very much do not like the term; um, very insulting. The Ukrainians that are currently fighting um, were also very insulted. I think Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, came out and said, essentially said that uh, that option wasn't on the table and that 
and try to cover Macron and say that oh that well that was never um, that was never elaborated on by the French president. But um, it's it's on the tape, and uh, a lot of Ukrainians are not very. Uh, well, they're not really willing to lay down and accept the fact that there'll be a buffer state. <laughs> well, it's it's pretty clear that that uh, Russia has real heartburn about the prospect of Ukraine being a part of NATO. In other words, having NATO right up against their border. Finland is a little yep. more removed, but uh, um, I, talk to me about uh, about NATO in general. Um, it, its mission was to hold back the Soviet Union which I believe had kind of the stated purpose during the Cold War yes. of we will, <laughs> I think Khrushchev said, we will bury you. They were they were very much on a, on a uh, crusade of conquest. Is that the the case with, with Russia today? Does In other words, does NATO still, uh, does it justify its existence and its expansion, what the world needs? I think so. It's, I mean, yes, it's a great question. I know we've talked about this previously, but for the countries that have to deal with Russia – as an immediate neighbor neighbor or in Russia's sort of historical sphere of influence like Finland, the Baltic states, Ukraine, NATO is still pretty relevant. Um, as for NATO expansion, um, you know, Finland has watched, you know, Russia invade Georgia in 2008. They, you know, said, you know, we're not going to join NATO. We're going to stay the course. We Finland has I think has topped the record charts for like the happiest citizenry, the least corrupt country. It's it's the it's the country that most of the uh, I guess democratic socialists point to in this country when they want an ideal society. Um, you know, they saw Georgia and they said we're not going to join NATO. Uh, they saw the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. They didn't want to join NATO. Uh, now that has started to change since Russia has actually launched a land war. Um, Finland has put out some some feelers to try and see if joining NATO would be a will first off be possible, which I think it is. It, you know, the checklist for um, joining NATO is that you have to have a functioning democratic system based on a market economy, fair treatment of minority populations, and an ability and willingness to contribute to NATO operations, and a commitment to democratic civil military relations and institutions, um, which Finland all meets. However, there is some hesitancy that if Finland were to join NATO, then that would be almost a a, a middle finger, if you will, to Russia, uh, and that could provoke a similar Russian response um, like they have done in Ukraine towards Finland. I, and that's, I guess that was the next place I really wanted to go. I, Finland doesn't strike me as being quite the proximity or um, having the economic might or the contested regions, you know, that, uh, that Ukraine does, the Donbass and, and uh, Luhansk and so forth. But uh, if, if Finland were to join NATO, would Russia see that as, as a big a provocation as Ukraine joining NATO? So I believe the one of the Russian foreign ministers stated that um, if Finland were to join NATO, then we would reconsider like positioning of nuclear weapons in that area of the country, which you know does set off alarm bells and scares people. But um, you mentioned that you know Finland isn't Finland is not I think Finland is not a very um, heavily populated country. There's 5.5 million people in the entire country, so that's less than my home state of South Carolina. Um, it does have the second largest border with Russia and Europe at 1,300 kilometers. However, uh, I learned that Finland is one of the last uh, European countries to mandate conscription in its constitution. 
So every single Finn, be it male, female, must serve in the armed forces. Um, and there are laws that mandate that uh, pharmaceutical companies and industries have to maintain a critical stockpile of materials in case of Russian aggression. And this is this comes from their experience during World War II. Um, I do think that it might be a provocation, but uh, from what uh, the research I've done for this article, the Russian military has sort of been, I don't know, exposed as being pretty incompetent. Um, the supply lines that have been used to supply to resupply um, invading forces in Ukraine um, have been horrible. You've seen pictures of the the Ukrainian farmer towing towing uh, towing tanks back to Russia, and uh, convoys running out of gas, and so. There is a, a camp that says, well, you know, the Russian military hasn't able, been able to take Ukraine, so the Finns really have nothing to worry about. And that is a good, a good insight. Uh, however, long term, I think that Finland should consider joining just because um, the threshold for military action in Moscow is now so much lower than it was back in 2014 or even in 2008 when um, – when Russia invaded Georgia off of a false flag operation. And Finland has a lot of experience um, dealing with you know, Russian disinformation or trying to uh, commit um, false flag operations to justify an invasion. Uh, just one last thing. I know I'm kind of going on a bit long. Um, during the, the Winter War back in the 19, 1939, um, that was actually triggered by a Russian false flag operation. Russia shelled a border post in the frozen reaches of north of inside the arctic circle in northern russia uh eastern finland and then use that as a justification for military that was under style and it killed maybe four russian border guards um so they've been there they have that experience and i think that would be really invaluable for nato and and if i recall Finland, as you mentioned, they they did a very good job of of holding their own against those uh, those Soviet forces uh, back during the the 1939-41 campaign. I'm I'm trying to remember. It seems like one of the the legendary snipers of all time was was Finnish, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, yeah, the nickname White Death. Uh, I think yep. he has the most confirmed kills of any sniper in any conflict. And the Finns uh, Finnish army was mostly on skis. Um, they really did a great job of breaking up uh, the Russian military and forcing them onto frozen lakes where there was no cover and um, pretty ing- pretty ingenious um, resistance, ultimately unsuccessful. But if any country has experience with Russian aggression, it's them. And I really think they could be uh, an asset to NATO and really protect this you know happy, prosperous country that they've built. Okay, again, we are talking with Roy Matthews, who is a Young Voices contributor. Roy, where can people find you on social media? So you can find me on Twitter at yaboyroy98 with an underscore in between yaboy and Roy. I made it when I was 15, so I apologize. <laughs> you are um, forgiven. <laughs> and, but other than that, um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I post all my articles there. Um, but also, if you're interested in energy and transportation, check out Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure at, at AII.org. Um, if that is your policy um, expertise and want to know more. Okay. Thanks, Roy. Great visiting with you. 